Thank you so much. It's great to be back in Raleigh. Man, uh, Duncan is so on fire for Jesus. I think we could turn out the, all the lights in this building, darken the room, and the whole room would be lit with the glow that's coming from his heart. He's amazing. I've known him for 20-some years now already. It's amazing how time flies. And uh, uh, we're just talking about how much we love Jesus today as much as we did when we first got saved. I got saved 47 years ago. And it's good to be back in North Carolina because I got busted for drugs when I was 16. And I was sent down to North Carolina. My, my uncle's a professor at UNC, so I have roots here. And uh, my brother actually also went to Duke University. He's a surgeon, part of our church. Uh, and so a uh, number of my family uh, grew up here. And so, uh, yeah, it's a long story. But let me introduce you to one of our pastors in our network. Uh, we have 162 churches just in California. So... Erwin, why don't you stand up? He's a great Hispanic pastor in downtown L.A., and he's traveling with me as we are going to the battleground states and doing our part to speak to the churches that we have relationship with and encouraging people to vote and vote biblically and vote for life. And that's one of the main messages the Lord has given to me. But I want to talk to you about revival. And we both have roots in the Toronto outpouring, which was a historically a major revival. But when I talk about revival, I have to define what I mean by revival because there's so many um, synonyms for revival, like renewal, an awakening, outpouring, glory. And uh, my, my dad, for example, was the first Korean Southern Baptist pastor in North America, and that's what led us to come and immigrate in 1960. There was no Korean Southern Baptist churches in North America. Now there are thousands. And in fact, my dad was the president of the Korean Southern Baptist Convention several times, and uh, he's a well-known Korean pastor. And I'm really here by the grace of God because my parents prayed me into the kingdom. I was like Duncan, totally rebellious. I did not know the Lord. And um, I just came to the country in the 60s. I wanted to be accepted by my peers and, you know, just wanted to make friends. But I was in a school in Montgomery County, Maryland, all white school. And my sister and I were the only two of color. So how many know kids are going to let you know how different you are? <laughs> because they just don't have the, the maturity to, you know, not be a racist, to be honest. And so they called me chink, even though I'm not Chinese. They called me Jap, even though I'm not Japanese. They called me Vietnamese, even though I'm not Vietnamese, because the war in Vietnam started in the 60s. We got involved in that. Now, for those who are not here Friday, I, I gave a little cross-cultural lesson because as a Korean, I can tell the difference between a Chinese and Japanese. I know you guys all think we all look alike, but we're different. So can I sensitize you in a time that we need to be sensitive to the differences? Can I hear an amen this morning? Are you awake? It's really, really simple. If you see a rich-looking nation, they're Chinese. <laughs> if you see a, a smart-looking nation, they're Japanese. But if you see a handsome-looking Asian, he's Korean. So that's how you tell the difference between the Koreans, Japanese, and Chinese. <laughs> anyway, but I felt very insecure being a, a person of color in an all-white school. And, but the Lord had given me a leadership gift even back then. Unfortunately, I led my friends into rebellion. I got involved in the gang when I was fifth grade. And by the time I was 15, I was doing heroin, cocaine as a pastor's kid, LSD, speed, barbiturates, anything I could get a hold of. By the time I was 17, I was a high school dropout and a drug addict and a drug pusher. 
Now, probably the greatest sin I committed was dropping out of school for the whole purpose of immigrating to this country is to get an education. And uh, I don't know if you know any Korean students in your school as you're growing up, but, but the parents uh, just encourage you and even force them to study and be top of the class. So my sister was straight-A student, valedictorian. She went to Smith College and then Johns Hopkins Medical School. She met her husband there, and he's a top surgeon for Mayo Clinic. Uh, in fact, he's the head of ENT department for Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. My brother, same thing, straight-A student, and um, went to Duke and became a surgeon. He's now uh, uh, head of surgery at his department at Kaiser in California. But for me, I mean, I dropped out of school. This is the unpardonable sin for the Asian community. <laughs> I grew my hair long, and I just left home, started to hitchhike. I got into Eastern religion. I was searching. I was dropping acid almost every single day trying to find God. And uh, my parents didn't know what to do. You know, I left home, and they were just praying for me. They were weeping over me. And uh, I come from a very rich Christian heritage. On my mom's side, my grandparents were the founding elders of a very famous Presbyterian church, Young Not Presbyterian Church. It's the largest Presbyterian church, 80,000 members in Korea. In fact, when Billy Graham came to Korea during the Korean War, he preached at my grandparents' church. It's a major evangelical church. And so that's on my mom's side, my dad, Baptist, and his grandmother, my great-grandmother, got saved in a great revival called the Pyongyang Revival of 1907. And uh, it's a, a revival. And by the way, Americans sent missionaries to Korea, whereas the British sent missionaries to China. Uh, all the mission boards divided up the nations. And so uh, we, you sent a Presbyterian missionary and a Methodist missionary in 1880 to Korea. And thank God they were evangelical because when the Welsh revival was breaking out in 1904, they said we need to pray and fast that God would bring the Welsh revival to Korea. And God answered that prayer in 1907. This incredible revival broke out that lasted 45 years. And the only thing that ended it was the Korean War in 1950. But the point being is that it established the basis for some of the world's largest churches, including Yonggi Cho's church, Full Gospel Central Church. How many of you heard of uh, Yonggi Cho and Full Gospel? At the peak, 750,000 church uh, members. I mean, we're talking about three quarters of a million members in one locality. I had the privilege of doing a healing crusade for him. Three nights, yeah, 45,000 per service. It was so surreal. I mean, it's like a stadium. And, uh, and so he wanted me to bring the healing uh, word to his congregation. What a privilege. But I want to just say this. I only got accepted because he knew my dad. My dad were friends. They played golf together. And so he, he says, you're a Byung-Kukan son. Come and preach at my church. And what an open door. So a tremendous legacy. I'm here by the grace of God. And by the way... <laughs> My grandmother, of the, the founding elder of uh, Young Nog Presbyterian, passed away five years ago at the age of 101. She was so godly. She was in the glory. She just kept on living and living because she was in the presence of God. And by the way, if your grandmother's praying for you, you don't have a chance. You will get saved. I got saved, radically saved. To give you an idea, I got saved at a Deep Purple concert in 1973, May 25th. I walked out of the Baltimore Civic Center, and the moment I walked out, I was instantly delivered from drug addiction. I've never gone back. You don't have to go back. 
You don't have to go back. You don't have to be a yo-yo Christian. I don't believe in backsliding. I believe in glory, going from glory to glory. Second Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed from glory to glory. So I want to talk about revival because my dad would have revival services, but it would be a Southern Baptist. He'd bring in an evangelist from Korea, and they would have three nights of meeting, and he would call that revival. And I'm sure there were good meetings. I'm sure people got saved. But that's not revival. Three characteristics of a historic revival, very quickly, and then we'll go to our text in, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Three characteristics of a historic revival is, number one, the church first gets revived. It always begins with the church. As 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So if my people, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. So it begins with us being revived. It's when the church returns to her first love. Which is amazing because when you see that text in Revelation 2, 4, a church that experienced the greatest revival recorded in the book of Acts. Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and tremendous revival breaks out and Paul stays three years in Ephesus. All of Asia heard the gospel, that is Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. I mean, to give you a contrast, he stays in Thessalonica only three weeks, but three years in Ephesus because the revival was so massive. And yet 40 years, one generation later, God has to write to them in Revelation 2, verse 4, he says, I know your hard works. I know your perseverance. You tested those who called themselves to be apostles, but they were false apostles. By the way, if there are false apostles, so many apostles that were false, it stands to reason they're also true apostles. Amen? And so we just have to understand that there are so many apostles beyond the 12 that we see obscure people like Adronicus and Junius in Romans 16, a female apostle. If you have problems with female apostles, I don't know what you do with Heidi Baker, okay? <laughs> 35,000 churches planted by her. Come on. And so, and so there were so many apostles, but there were also false apostles. So they were discerning, they were hardworking, they were persevering. But God says, I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. You know, and I, I've been saved for 47 years, and I, I remember some of my friends who got saved during the Jesus People Movement. They were just so on fire for the Lord. They went maybe good 10 years, and then 10 years later, they backslide. And it's not how you start that counts. It's how you finish. And so I can say by the grace of God, I love Jesus as much today than I did when I first got saved in 1973, May 25th. And so we see the church needs to be revived. And this is not a one-time thing. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the continual present tense. It says be filled, but the way it reads is to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's something that we need constantly, just like drinking water. You don't just drink water and then, you know, avoid it for a few days. No, you'll be, you'll be dehydrated. You need to be satiated constantly, hydrated constantly with water. In the same way, God wants you to take another drink this morning. <laughs> 
And, um, and so we're going to have a time of ministry. But, but the second characteristic of a historic revival, first the church gets revived, but then the harvest comes in. And when I, we talk about harvest, I mean, I just mentioned the Welsh revival in 1904 with Evan Roberts in Wales. Broke out in October of 1904. In the next six months, 100,000 people got saved in Wales alone. It's amazing. The Jesus People Movement, when I got saved in 1973, Time Magazine actually did an article in 71. Front cover with the words, Jesus Revolution, picture of Jesus on the front. And they were talking about the revival broke out in 67. So historically, the Jesus People Movement started in 1967 in a church in Costa Mesa, California with Chuck Smith and a hippie evangelist named Lonnie Frisbee who came down and blew things up. That revival went from 67 to 77. And Time Magazine wrote that 2 million people, in the article in 71, and by the way, you could Google these articles. It's amazing what you could do with the internet. And so I've actually Googled and read the articles. Amazing. And, and so they, they said estimated 2 million people got saved during that revival up to 71. But it's a low estimation. According to historians I know, 20 million got saved during the Jesus People Movement globally. It was a massive move of the Holy Spirit. So the harvest comes in. The third characteristic of a historic revival, it transforms society. When revival, when heaven invades earth, earth looks more like heaven. God begins to eradicate injustices like slavery. Think about the Great Awakening of 1738. A man named William Wilberforce got saved in that revival. And he was a member of parliament, Cambridge graduate, brilliant. He got saved through the whole Methodist movement. John Wesley, who was a catalyst, you know, Whitfield Wesley, the Wesley brothers, Charles Wesley, John Wesley. But he had an encounter with the Lord. He knew he was in parliament by divine appointment and that his assignment was to eradicate the slave trade and slavery in Great Britain. Now you have to understand, slave trade was a number one industry for Great Britain at that time. It would be like telling Russia what the number one source of income for them is petroleum, that you got to change and go to solar power or wind power. They say, are you crazy? We're trying to do that in California right now, and everyone says we're crazy, and we are, but that's just another issue. It's another issue, but, but the, the point is, is that he, he began to realize that in order to change Great Britain, he had to change the mentality of the people and he had to educate them. So he began to uh, write and, and um, they, they had a pictorial book of how the slaves were stacked on top of each other, chained together with just one bucket to eliminate their feces, which most of them could not even get to. And they're eliminating and defecating on top of each other as they're being shipped from West Africa to the United States. And he said that, and we're talking about fine art paint, a drawing. That book became a bestseller and people began to realize where people are made in the image and likeness of God. All lives are sacred. This is an abomination. Who cares if we're making money? We need to eradicate this. And one by one, people who were abolitionists got elected to parliament 
By 1807, that Slave Trade Act was passed, eliminating slave trade. And by 1833, slavery was abolished altogether. Can we thank God for that? That is what happens in revival. And so I believe, and I'm going to just make this statement, I believe we're on the verge of the greatest revival in the history of the church. It's based on Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to see all three things happen. And why do I say that? Because here's what Haggai writes 536 years before Jesus is born. He prophesies. Now, for those who, just a little background of Haggai, he's a contemporary of Ezra. The governor at that time was Zerubbabel. And in Ezra, we see how Cyrus, the king of Persia, Babylon had come into Jerusalem, 586 BC, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took people into captivity, and they were exiled in Babylon. But then the Persians took over, their Bab- took over Babylon. Now, Cyrus is the king. And, um, and it's really interesting how God prophesies about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, 130 years before Cyrus is even born. It's amazing. The Bible is so supernatural. Hundreds of prophecies, specific prophecies about our Messiah alone that we see how God fulfilled, like being born in Bethlehem. You know, Micah 5, 2, even though you're the smallest of all the cities in Judah, but out of you will come forth a king who will reign forever. And of course, that's Jesus who's reigning. How many know he's reigning today? He's on the throne. He's not standing. He's not bringing his hands, nervous about the COVID-19. <laughs> he is seated because he knows the end. He knows, Revelation eleven fifteen 15, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will continue to reign forever and ever. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, our resurrected Lord. And so Haggai prophesied because what happened was is that even though Cyrus gave permission for the Jewish people to return, the remnant to return, and they started building the temple, it got halted because of persecution. And, uh, and, and so now we're talking about like an 18-year pause, and God raises up the prophet Haggai to encourage the people to finish building the temple. So Haggai basically is almost like a fundraising letter, just saying you live in your panel houses, but the house is still not built. But God's going to provide the silver's mines, the golden mines, says the Lord. Haggai 2, verse 8. And so he's trying to encourage them to finish. But in the midst of this, he prophesies, I will shake all nations. And then he prophesies, the wealth of the nations will come. Money's going to be provided for us to finish the temple. And then the third thing he says is, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Revival is going to come. Now, you have to understand the context of when he prophesied this, he was thinking about the temple that would be finished under Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, under his leadership. And he's going to fill the house with glory, the temple with glory. And then he goes on to say, verse 9, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. And what's he saying there? He's saying... When Solomon built his temple that was destroyed in 586 B.C., that temple was so full of the glory, the kavod of God, the manifest presence of God, the priests could not even minister. They were on their faces, laid out flat because of the weighty presence of God. 
And that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when they dedicated the temple, Solomon's temple. And he prophesied the glory is going to be greater than this glory that we experience under King Solomon's reign. But when you read Ezra and read uh, when they dedicate the temple in Ezra chapter 6, the glory didn't come. In fact, just the opposite. Then we go into a period, Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and we go into a, a, a 400 years of silence. Not one prophetic word, not one scripture. It's almost like the glory lifted, not the glory came. So when he says, I'm going to fill this house with glory, what's he talking about? He was prophesying about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will take place in Acts chapter 2. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. And he was prophesying what Joel 2, 28 prophesied. And afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And we've been in this period because now we understand the temple, the building is not God's house. You're God's temple, your God's house, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As beautiful as this building is, how many know this building is not the church? You're the church. You're the ecclesia. As 1 Corinthians 3.16, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells within you. So that's what he was talking about. The glory of this house will be greater than the glory that Solomon experienced in the dedication of the temple. He was prophesying revival. Now, obviously, we see in part, and he saw in part, and he was trying to prophesy something that was relevant to encourage people to finish building the temple, but he was, he was caught up in the spirit and was prophesying to our period. So let's go back to the first word, then I'm going to shake all nations. Is that just a hyperbole? Is he just saying something general to say, I'm going to shake nations, and we're talking about Persia, we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the nations at that time around the world? Is he referring to them? I don't think so. I believe that every word in the Bible is there by inspiration. All means all. Just like in Acts 10, 38, Jesus went about doing good, healing all who are oppressed of the devil, for God was with them. I believe that that means all, everyone who came to him, that's God's heart. He loves people. He wants everyone to be healed. Do you believe that? Is that your Bible understanding of the word of God? That's God's heart. So when he says he wants to shake all nations, when does that happen? Only two times that I'm aware of in modern history that nations have been shaken. The first time would be World War II. You may not realize this, but 190 nations were involved in World War II. When we think of World War II, we think about Nazi Germany, we think about Russia, we think about Great Britain, we think about the United States. But everyone had to align themselves with the Allied forces, which included Great Britain and the United States and Russia and China, or the Axis forces that included Germany, Japan, and Italy. Every nation had to align because you could get invaded and if you didn't have a choice of which nation, either you would not be protected by the allied forces and they could occupy your nation, your island nation, whatever, and that's what happened. And so like the Philippines allied themselves with the United States, but Japan then invaded the Philippines. And the nations were shaken. We're talking about 85 million to 90 million that died in World War II. 190 nations. So he says, I'm going to shake all nations. 
and I don't want to spend too much time, but God causes all things to work together for good because he turns in a time of crisis people's hearts to God. And then he pours out his spirit. And the greatest revival in modern history took place in 1945, right after World War II. Think about it. God launched Billy Graham right here from North Carolina. 1949, he came to my city of Los Angeles. Started in a small little tent on Hill in Washington. You could go to that place, that spot, where he set up the tent. And it kept on growing. What was supposed to be three weeks ended up going seven weeks, and they ended up in the L.A. Coliseum, 100,000 people each night, and he was catapulted into international fame. But it wasn't just Billy Graham, it was Oral Roberts in 47. It was another revival called the Latter Rain in 1948, where the Holy Spirit fell upon these Assembly of God pastors in North Battleford, Canada, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to prophesy, and all of a sudden, the restoration of apostles and prophets illuminated to them that, that, that there are true apostles and prophets today because prior to that, the assembly of God did not even believe, even though they spoke in tongues and believed in healing, they did not believe that apostles and prophets existed today. And, and so we see this move of the Holy Spirit which led to the charismatic renewal in 1958 with Dennis Bennett, St. Mark's Church, and it hit every single denomination. What was different from, between the Pentecostals is that the Pentecostals formed their own denomination out of 1906 Azusa Street, but the charismatic movement hit the Baptists, hit the Roman Catholics. And so in Duquesne University and Ann Arbor, Michigan and, and um, Notre Dame, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully in the charismatic movement. Even Barrett, uh, Amy Barrett, who just got nominated and then soon to be confirmed, it comes out of a Catholic charismatic movement out of Notre Dame. That is the place where it began in the late 60s. And I was just brand new saved when I ran into these Roman Catholic charismatic believers. I'm talking about cardinals and bishops who spoke in tongues. And it started with an Episcopalian priest named Dennis Bennett in 1958. And then the Jesus People Movement, I mentioned that in 67 to 77, and then John Wimber, third wave, and then Toronto outpouring in 1994. It's been one wave after another since World War II. Come on. We've been experiencing revival. This church was birthed. And I got born again again in Toronto in 94 when I went there. I walked into Toronto. I left crawling on my knees. I could not stand up. I'm serious. It's not an, it's not an exaggeration. I remember Carol praying for me, and uh, I, uh, you know, I would read about these uh, revivalists like Whitfield and Wesley in Aldersgate, New Year's Eve, when the Holy Spirit fell, and they were praying, God, lift your hand, we're going to die. I said, man, I've never prayed that prayer before. I, I want to experience that kind of power. Well, I did in 94, and Carol's praying for me. And she was saying, more Lord, more Lord. And I'm just saying, I am dying. <laughs> she, I'm going to explode. Please stop praying for me. But you're not supposed to say that in Toronto. You're supposed to be in agreement and say, yes, more Lord. But I was just undone. By the way, there's nothing new under the sun. When Whitfield preached, people were falling, rolling around laughing. People were jerking <laughs> They were falling out off the trees because they wanted to hear him preach. And they couldn't see because of the crowds of 30,000 without a mic. 
and they would just get slain in the spirit. I mean, listen, if I touch live wire, how many, how many know I'm going to react to live electricity? How much more the power of the Holy Spirit? Come on. And so we freak out that people, there's nothing new. The same spirit that was poured out in 1738 in the Great Awakening is the same spirit that's here. And so this revival broke, but something happened. It was like clockwork every 10 years. And so, 94. And that continued into 2005, but there was no move of the Holy Spirit in 2005 or in 2010. Something happens, there was like a grief in the spirit. And now I'm a historian. I was a history major at University of Maryland, and I focused on church history at Fuller Theological Seminary. I spent eight years in cemetery, I mean seminary. And so, you know, this is my background. And so I'm studying modern church history. I said, where is the move of the Holy Spirit after Toronto? And now I feel, and I want to submit to you, the second time that God has shaken all nations is 2020 with COVID-19. Again, it's not a hyperbole. We're talking about 200 nations been impacted by this pandemic. It's impacted every single nation because of globalization and our travels. People are spreading this virus left and right. It's the most contagious virus. Thankfully, it's not as deadly. I mean, just we've learned so much, haven't we, from the beginning. I mean, when it first broke out, our governor Newsom in California said, out of 40 million California, it's the largest state population-wise, he said that 25 million will get COVID-19 and 2 million will die in California alone. They were getting outrageous numbers, but we didn't know any different. And so we just believed, we mitigated, we locked down. But we begin to realize, you know, and even today, eight months later, little over 15,000 people have died in California out of 40 million. So the numbers were way off. And that's... All those who have died in nursing homes with underlying condition, those who have died of COVID itself is only very minuscule. With COVID, it's been over 200,000 in the United States, but of COVID, around 8,000 in the United States, which is really like a bad flu season. I'm not trying to minimize, as, as I emphasize, this pandemic has spread to the nations, but it's not as deadly. But nevertheless, it's impacted our economy especially the poor nations. I mean, as a pastor in Los Angeles, I, I, my heart goes out to our single moms who were looking forward to school opening up in the fall to send their kids, but schools are still locked down in California. They can't afford a babysitter or a tutor or a nanny to watch their kids so they could go to work. They're stuck. And so our church has raised over $100,000 just to bring relief to our church members from COVID-19, because LA and California is crazy. I mean, I come to North Carolina, and what a luxury to go to a restaurant and have in-person dining, having waiters come and serve. I can't do that in Los Angeles. You don't realize how good you have it in many ways. And our governor keeps on saying, you know, we got to mitigate with one life saved. It's worth all the economic problems. I said, where are you getting that information? It's like the spirit of stupid is upon some of these governors. 
because people are dying because my brother, who's a surgeon, could not do surgeries, any surgeries, for up to seven months because they didn't want to inundate patients that were not COVID patients. They wanted to have all the hospital rooms for COVID patients, but the influx didn't happen. President Trump sent a ship to our, our state to, to take care of COVID patients and was just empty, so the hospital ship was sent back to the United States. And so when he locked us down, he opened it up for a little over a month, but he said, when you meet, it has to be less than 100 people and no singing or chanting when you meet. What the heck are you talking about? First time elected officials telling the church how to worship. I don't know, we don't chant, but we definitely sing. And we're going to let the high presence of God be in our mouth. Come on. And he said, abortion clinics are essential. Marijuana dispensaries are essential. Liquor stores are essential. But the church is not essential. And we said, with all due respect, we have been essential for 2,000 years. And so the Lord spoke to me on Mother's Day right that weekend to open up. And we've been open since May 31st uh, on Pentecost Sunday. And we're still open. Not one COVID patient. No one has died in our network, even in the 70 nations that we're in. Thank God. We've had people with COVID. Our pastor in London was diabetic and she almost died. But she, thank God, God healed her. So we've had some scares. But for the most part, we, we don't know one pastor, one leader in our network of churches that have died, they would report that because I've asked them to let me know what's going on during this uh, pandemic. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. God is so good. So what is going on? He is, I believe, using this to discipline the church, to purify the church. Every time he allows a plague to come or a discipline to come. We read about that in 2 Chronicles 7, 13, not 14, 13. And if we hear what the Spirit of God is saying, by the way, Jesus said this more than any other word, more than love one another, more than repent. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. 16 times. We have to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. He's saying, I'm ready to pour out my spirit again and fill this house with glory, the greatest revival. But throughout scripture, we know the main condition before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to repent. Wow. Yeah. It's Acts 2. Repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the pattern. Repent, and then the Holy Spirit. It's Acts 3, 19. Repent that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's Joel 2, we look at verse 28, and afterwards I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. But after what? You have to go to verse 12. It says, repent with all your heart, with weeping, fasting, and mourning, and then I'll pour out my spirit. So the question is, repent of what? What is on God's sword? What's he saying? And I want to submit this to you. I believe that the number one injustice issue of our time, the number one sin in the globe around the world is a sin of shedding innocent blood through abortion. It's a sin of shedding innocent blood. The Bible says in Proverbs 6, 17, there's six things the Lord hates, seven, which is an abomination, hands that shed innocent blood. And you can't get more innocent than a, an innocent baby in the womb. And I know you say, well, there are other issues and let's not be so fixated on a love affair with a fetus. Listen, what is on God's heart? Yeah. What is on God's heart? 
See, Abraham Lincoln understood this. He understood the doctrine of shedding innocent blood through slavery. He knew that the Civil War was judgment on the years of slavery in our nation. That's why in his second inaugural address, he said this. A month before he's assassinated, before the war even ends, while the war is at its peak, he says, fondly do we hope and fervently we pray that this mighty scourge of war will come to a speedy end. But if God allows it to continue until every drop of blood from the lash is paid for by another drawn by the sword, then it, as it was said 3,000 years ago, must be said again. The judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. What was he saying? He's saying that the 650,000 soldiers have died in the Civil War is because of the injustice of slavery. He understood the doctrine that if you murder without consequences, without justice to that murder, it brings a curse to a land. I wish I had time to develop that. But what do you do now with 60 million babies that have been aborted in our nation? Not including all the billions. Now, listen, I am not here to condemn anyone who's had an abortion. Unfortunately, when I was 16, my girlfriend got a, a pregnant, got, got an abortion. I was complicit. So I'm not here to condemn. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What I'm talking about is for what we need to do, as Daniel did in chapter 9, identify with the sins of a nation, even though he was righteous, to repent on behalf of the nation of Israel so that they can experience the restoration of Israel. That's what I'm trying to get at. So if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And I feel that it can't just be, oh God, forgive us, because we've been doing that since 73, since Roe v. Wade. Every single call, I've been president of the call from 2000, 2003. We're talking about stadium events. The smallest stadium was 35,000. We've had hundreds of thousands of young people pray and repent. But it's not enough. I feel we have to vote and legislate just like Wilberforce saw that in order to end that abomination of the slave trade that he began to mobilize his people to vote for abolitionists to be on parliament. In the same way, even if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, which I believe will happen with, with uh, uh, Barrett being nominated and to be confirmed, it goes to a state level. So every state will have to decide if they want to make abortion legal or not. And you say, well, you know, there are other issues. Again, why are you so involved with just abortion? Listen, there's 631 laws in the Old Testament, a lot of laws. But God reduces what's on his heart to the top 10. And even though I'm an immigrant, that's on my heart. That's not in the top 10, even though it's in the Old Testament. Among the 631 laws on how to take care of strangers and foreigners and the poor. Now, one verse is about the poor, even though that's on my heart. But the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. That's on his heart. Do not shed innocent blood. For the good of your people, for the good of the nation of Israel, this is to help you. Because if you have the shedding of innocent blood without the consequences of justice commensurate with that murder, you will be cursed. And then he says, do not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, the sixth commandment, seventh commandment go hand in hand because it was the sexual revolution of the 60s that demanded abortion in the 70s. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's because of our immorality. We're to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength with our body, but it begins even with the mind because you look at pornography. We've been baptized with the baptism of filth. We're complicit when we watch pornography with the problem of abortion today. 
because where our spirit of lust is released and we start having sex without being responsible and people get pregnant and then we think of the simple solution is abortion. It's an abomination to God. There are consequences to our sins. So, so God says, I want you to repent, but I also want you to do something with your action. With faith without action is, is dead. I want you to vote. That's why I'm here to say this election is the most consequential, most important election because I believe our religious freedom is at stake. I mean, think about it. We can't meet as a church. We've been meeting, of course, our church, but we're only talking about a handful of churches. California has the second largest evangelical population next to Texas. And we're just talking about a few churches, the John MacArthur's churches meeting. I mean, who would ever have thought that John MacArthur and I would be in the same ship? Jack Hibbs with Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, just only a few churches that are open. There may be others, that, but I'm talking about as far as churches that are apostolic influential. And so two months ago, this is not an exaggeration, I get a letter from the city prosecutor saying, we will arrest you if you continue to meet. Not only will we arrest you, but we will fine every church member $1,000 each time they meet. Then on top of that, we have the right to arrest your church members. This was the letter I got two months ago. We're not talking about being in North Korea or communist China or the former Soviet Union. We're talking about the United States of America. They're letting prisoners out because of COVID-19, but they want to arrest law-abiding citizens who just want to worship, who've never had a record. We have come to this nation where Isaiah prophesied this and Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, darkness light like darkness. That word woe means this judgment is going to come. And that's why I'm saying this election is so consequential. And I want to encourage you, vote biblically. By all means, vote because you're a citizen. I'm an immigrant that became a citizen. And in the midst of all the flaws in this country, in California, this is still the greatest nation in the world. I've been to almost 100 nations, and whenever I come back, I said, this is the greatest country in the world. I love America. I'm so grateful to be a citizen of heaven and the United States. And so I want to encourage you to vote. I'll close with this story. This is a true story in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Joshua has just supernatural crossed the Jordan River. He's now on what's called the Plains of Jericho, the West Bank today. He's ready to go into Jericho. And it's just walking in the nighttime, just probably praying to say, how are we going to do this? This is so crazy to march around seven times, seven days, seven days, seven more times. He sees this huge angel with a sword drawn. So he asks him this question, are you for us or for the enemy? And he said, neither. And we call this in the Bible a theophany where God appears. It's the same being that appeared in Exodus 3 when God says to him, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. The same word is given to Joshua, take off your sandals for you're staying, standing on holy ground. Joshua falls flat on his face and he says, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? So the question is, are you for us or for the enemy? It's the wrong question. The question is not if you're a Democrat or a Republican. The question is, what does my Lord want and what is on his heart? That's the question. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be flat on our face and say, Lord, what's on your heart? 
Jesus our Lord, when we gave our life to Jesus Christ, for those who just said it in the beginning as Duncan led us in the sinner's prayer, from now on you've got to ask, what is on your heart, Lord? And I'll do what you want me to do. That's all I'm asking you to do. And I believe if we do this collectively, we'll see the greatest revival. God will say, okay, I'm going to now fill this house. The time of shaking is over. I'm going to fill this house with glory. And you will see the greatest revival, the greatest harp, and greatest transformation of our society in the history of the church. Let's all stand up. Yeah. Again, I'm going to ask you to make a fresh commitment to Jesus as Lord. I know we started out this way, but maybe there is a perspective now to say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for being lukewarm about the abortion issue. And we get pro-life fatigue. And we're there, you know, but I, I feel we're this close. Historically, we're this close of overturning Roe v. Wade. And... Um, and, you know, when I started this battleground tour, speaking about One Race for Life, which is an organization I'm the president and founder of, um, Ginsburg hadn't died. Barrett wasn't nominated. And here I'm, you know, wherever I go, the, the focus is on COVID, and all of a sudden on Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, Ginsburg passes away, and then on the eve of Yom Kippur, Barrett's nominated and I said, oh my goodness, everywhere I'm going, people are thinking about the abortion. I'm talking about in society. They're all just upset. The woman marched yesterday to protest against Barrett's nomination. And all of them are holding signs about pro-choice and women's rights. Well, what about the human right of the baby? The baby has rights too. And so we need to really galvanize together as the body of Jesus Christ and do what's on his heart and bring about reformation of our society. So, Father, your word says, my people volunteer freely in the day of your power, Psalm 50, verse 5. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just now mobilize your people here at Catch the Fire Church, Raleigh, as well as the other churches in America that love you. We say we love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's only by your grace we can love because we love because you first loved us. And so receiving your heart of compassion for the unborn, for the sacred life of the unborn, by your grace, we will do our part to see transformation in America. We'll vote biblically, we'll vote life. In Yeshua HaMashiach's name, in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for hearing my heart.